0: So this is the remnant. The remnant come to the Judges' study. That's that's good to know. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, good to see you all this morning. i glad the, uh, the Lord was pleased to give us some sunshine today. A beautiful day. Uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Judges. I want to go ahead and invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Judges 5. And that's where we'll be, we'll be spending our time. Now last week, uh, you heard a very interesting story about a prophetess named Deborah and Barak, who executed a rousing victory by the mercy of God over uh, Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera with his 900 iron chariots. It was, uh, pun intended, a smashing victory as Sisera's skull was crushed under Jael's hammer. Well, after Sisera and his 900 iron chariots are defeated, uh, there is a victory celebration. Uh, And it's similar uh, to what you see in Exodus 15. I'll comment on that in a bit. Uh, But we're coming to that victory celebration and kind of the song written in celebration in Judges 5. So let me open us up in prayer and then we'll read this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this day that You've given in Your kindness, the Lord's Day, a day of great joy to us as we come to hear Your Word. We come to spend time together to fellowship and enjoy our union in Christ. Lord, we pray that this morning that You would attend to us with the power of Your Holy Spirit, that we might understand Your truth. Encourage us, O Lord, with the knowledge of who You are and Your great acts of salvation. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read Judges 5. Uh, it's kind of a strange passage, so I, I, I assign myself uh, this strange passage. So Judges 5, we'll read the whole chapter. Then sang Deborah and Barach, the son of Abinoam on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, Give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds drop water. The mountains quake before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, The highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of His villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down march the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makir marched down the company, sorry, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. Then kings came, they fought, Then they fought the kings of Canaan at Tanach, by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Moroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered the mother of Sisera. She wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as He rises in His might. And the land had rest for forty years. Okay, I told you it was a weird text. A lot of interesting things going on. We'll try to piece together what's happening in this passage. So this is the song of Deborah and Barak as they celebrate this great victory that the Lord has worked there in this particular valley. And it's very similar in kind to Moses and Miriam leading Israel in song after the defeat of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Uh, You remember Miriam takes up her tambourine uh, and leads the ladies in in song of praise. And, And Moses has this great song of celebration that the Lord is a mighty warrior and He's overthrown Pharaoh. and. What's interesting about this passage is while Judges has already shown us really in spades the apostasy of Israel, how they're running after other gods, this victory song is evidence to us that a remnant of faith remains. There are still a people who love Yahweh and are confessing His name. That should be an encouragement in a dark time that the Lord preserves His people. So this praise is from the people of the Lord to the Lord as the divine warrior. And we're going to think of it uh, with four headings as we move our way through the text. And the first thing to see is simply praise for Yahweh. Uh, Note how the song opens with a command to bless the Lord, verse 2. You see that? Bless the Lord. Why should you bless Him? Because Israel's leaders willingly came to fight against Sisera. That's mentioned in verse 2 and it's mentioned again in verse 9. Now, why do they do that? Why would oppressed Israel turn out to fight when it appears there's no way they can win? Sisera has these 900 iron chariots. You can't defeat them. So why would they willingly show up? Well, the logic of the text is because Yahweh, the covenant God, moved them. He called them to come out by His prophet, Deborah. He stirred their hearts to show up. So, to God belongs the praise. The Lord moved in the heart and Yahweh didn't just draw Israel out to battle, He actually fought for them. Now before the battle uh, is described, the kings and princes are told in verse 3 to hear or uh, to give ear. Uh, We could translate that it's like this. Listen. Pay attention. To Yahweh I will sing, Deborah says. I will make melody to Yahweh the God of Israel. And the idea here is she is calling on all the rulers of the earth, kings and peoples to give ear to listen and to recognize Yahweh should be praised because He's the one who worked this great triumph. Victory has not been achieved because of Israel's military muscle. We'll see in a second they didn't really have any. They won a victory because of a mighty God. And because of that mighty God, all the earth should fear. Again, it's very similar to what happens in Exodus 15. God has worked this great victory and He's overthrown Pharaoh. And how should the nations respond? They should be afraid. Uh, that will be the report that Rahab gives in Joshua too. if you remember, that the Canaanites, uh, particularly the Jerichoites, are quaking in their boots, right? Their hearts are melting in fear. Um, you you either fear Him and be destroyed or you fear Him and you serve Him. And here it's a call. Turn to Him because He's a a terror and you don't want to get on His bad side. Now how bad were things in this day before the battle comes? We get some reflection on that in verse 6. That the highways were abandoned. Um, Difficult stuff is going on. Uh, These were hard seasons where nobody is traveling safely, I think is the idea. They had to stick to the country roads to ensure they were going to be safe. So the villagers weren't openly walking around. And here comes the display of Yahweh coming to their rescue. So verses 4 and 5 graphically depict the Lord, covenant God, uh, literally this one of Sinai, marching through Seir, which is Edom, coming to the aid of His people. And the mention of Sinai recalls what happened at Sinai. When Israel came to the mountain, what was going on in that mountain? Do you remember? What's that? Okay, the, the, the mountain is shaking. That's something. What else? Okay, there's a lightning coming down, so fire descending upon the mountain. It's covered in a cloud, billows of smoke going forward. The glory of God is descending. And how did Israel feet how, how did they react? They, they were terrified of the greatness of God descending on the mountain. Well, that's the picture here. Yahweh, the One of Sinai, is coming near. And creation is coming unglued. Uh, The Red Sea event had pictured this where the Lord moved wind and waves, we might say, to accomplish a salvation for His people and then He commanded those waters to crush Pharaoh and his army. But here's, I think, the crucial thing as we come to this chapter in Judges, because how long ago was Sinai by this point? Well, it's a number of generations ago. But the power of Yahweh isn't stuck at Mount Sinai. Yahweh hasn't changed. The Lord is still with His people. The Lord is still coming near to give victory. The Lord is still displaying that He alone is the ruler in all the earth. And He's truly the great I Am. He's the great Helper of His people. And that's a comfort to God's people. And they're celebrating that truth. Look at what Yahweh has done. Look at the power of His mighty arm coming to bring victory. And how did He bring the victory? We get a little bit of a hint in verse 4. Deborah sings about the clouds dropping water, uh, which is clearly an allusion to rain, but probably here some type of violent storm. Uh, how good are chariots if the valley, and they're they're fighting in a valley, if the valley is full of mud. You can't use your chariots. So the Lord nullifies the advantage that Sisera had. And verse 21 later will elaborate on this. It will it will describe the torrent, Kishon. The, the Kishon River is what's being referred to. Um I should have put a map up here probably to show you where this is. This is in the tribal territory of Issachar. And there's the river Kishon that comes down. And if that river is flooding, is it's is at it flood stage, right? Water is spilling over. There weren't levees to stop it. So it's spilling over everywhere because of this great deluge that has come from heaven. And again, the chariots are useless. If it were not for this divine intervention by some type of storm how would Israel have fared in the battle? They would have got whipped. How do we know that? Well, not only do we see that things were tough in Israel. It was a scary time. You didn't want to go on the highways. Uh, But there was another problem. Look at verse 8. In the day of Deborah's prophetic words, there were no weapons. Verse 8, Was a shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? How do you win a victory if you don't have any weapons? You you can't. You're you're done. And and that's the scene. That too is reminiscent of the Red Sea, isn't it? Um, Israel is marching out of Egypt and they don't have a military cohort around them. Uh, They go out in weakness. Yes, they've asked the Egyptians, give us your stuff, and God moved the Egyptians to give them their stuff. But when they go out, they don't have any ability to defend themselves. They're with their families. They've got their pack animals. They're walking away. They can't resist an attack. And here come Pharaoh and his army. And they freak out. So, you, you would have freaked out too. You, you would have been overwhelmed with fear. Um, but the Lord comes to help His people in that tight spot. Well, He's the same God who comes near now to help Deborah and Israel in their tight spot. So the Lord is showing His character That He's the God who helps the helpless. That He fights for a vulnerable people. And here's what I want us to understand this morning. Our God still hasn't changed. This is the way He is. Now think about it a minute. When were we threatened by an oppressing enemy, a strong man whom we had no power in ourselves to overcome? When we were... Fast bound in sin and nature's night, right? When we were captive to the devil who is the oppressor. And when were we liberated? Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we had no strength in ourselves, no ability to remove our sin, no power to resist the satanic tyranny threatening us. In our state of helplessness, the Lord came. Jesus fought for us. And when he fought for us, creation came unglued. What happened is Christ is hanging on the cross to the sun. It goes dark, right? When Jesus um, dies, there's, there's a shaking. The curtain is torn. Later on, there are earthquakes. Rocks are splitting. Tombs are being opened. And Jesus rose from the dead. So here we're seeing our mighty God hasn't changed. He doesn't abandon His people. He doesn't leave us in the folly of our sin. He comes to our rescue. Even though our sin is our fault, the Lord still is willing to come to our rescue. And what should that produce in you and me? Well, what's it producing in Deborah and Israel? Praise. <laughs> Celebration. A declaration of the mighty nature of God. Bless the Lord. There's an excitement on, over what He's done. And we should have that same excitement. Yeah, you didn't just watch this happen, but you're being told in the Scriptures that it has happened. And you should enter into the house of God with praise upon your lips, blessing Him that He's done this. And you get the sense of this triumph of victory as Deborah tells rich and commoners alike in verse 10, that they need to talk about it. Um, She says, you who ride on white donkeys, that would be the, the wealthy, and you who walk by the way, those of you who don't have any donkeys, you both must tell of it. The news of God's deliverance of His people is so great, it should be the talk of the town. And if you go to the watering holes, the diners and dives of the ancient world, You should hear the news of the victory that God has worked for His people. Deborah is declaring, and Barak is declaring, you can't just go on with your life as though nothing happened here. And isn't that the same with the death and resurrection of Jesus? You can't just go on with your life as if God hasn't done anything. This is the folly of, of sinful man. They act as if God didn't send His Son and His Son wasn't raised from the dead. So you must tell of it. You must talk about it. You must speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord to declare the praises of God. Well then, in the second place, see with me, the people of Yahweh. Starting with verse 11, uh, the last phrase anyway, we get a glimpse of the cohort marching out into battle. There's the summons to Deborah, awake, awake, Deborah, and she's prophesying. There's... Uh, Barak, who is roused to service, arise, Barak, weed away your captives. The, the idea of the captives are these people who are oppressed. Um, the remnant, the people who have survived the 20 years of oppression, they are marching together. And who's a part of the uh, motley crew that's marching out with Barak? Well, there's Ephraim and Benjamin and Machir which is a town in the western uh, half of the tribe of Manasseh. There's Zebulun, and there's Issachar. And Issachar stands out, we're told in verse 15, because Issachar's princes came with Deborah. Uh, these men were faithful to follow Barak. Uh, there's an eagerness to follow the, uh, the judge that God has raised up into battle. But these tribes are contrasted with those who did nothing. We'll get verse 15. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. The idea here is the Reubenites heard the summons to come to battle through Deborah, and they thought about it, but then they didn't go. They discussed the matter thoroughly. Twice were told there was great searchings of heart, but they never moved. They never took any action. And they're rebuked here. Verse 16, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? And I think what we're being told is the tribe of Reuben has different priorities. They're not considering the welfare of the nations. They're just attending to their own interests. We've got to watch over our sheep. We can't go out with you into battle. Uh, this should sound a lot to you like John 10, the hired hand. It's contrasted with the good shepherd. The hired hand sees the wolf coming, and what does he do? He bails, these aren't my sheep. I'm not gonna, you know, threaten my self-interest by doing anything for them. But the Good Shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. It's interesting in Philippians chapter two, when Paul tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry and conceit but in humility of mind, consider others is more important than ourselves. That same word for rivalry or ambition is the word used in John 10 for the hired hand. He's like a mercenary. And if you don't pay a guy enough to face the trouble, he's just going to run off when trouble comes. Well, God's people can be like that. We can be like that. We can see our brethren in trouble and think to ourselves, and i got stuff to do. i got my own things to attend to. I'm not coming to your aid. That's the spirit of the Reubenites, and the selfishness continues in verse seventeen. Uh, Gilead, who's mentioned, is center city on. I should put it this way, on the other side of the Jordan. So, if the Jordan River comes down like this, um, this area over here, uh, close to the Sea of Galilee, that area would be where Gilead is, and they're not interested in coming to help either. This is probably both Gad and the eastern tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh ended up being divided in two. They just stayed home. They didn't even consider going out to do war. And then Dan and Asher, verse 17, also have excuses. Dan stayed with the ships, and Asher sat still on the coast of the sea. Uh, Dan, if, if this would be the Mediterranean Sea, Dan is about here on the coast, and Asher is north of that on the coast. They've got coastal interests. They've got fishing businesses to attend to. We've got to make sure our our ships are doing what they're supposed to do. So they don't come. And while these four and a half tribes do nothing, Zebulun and Naphtali, verse 18, risk their lives to the death. Imagine going out to help in this battle. You have no weapons. You have no training. You have no skill to defeat the iron chariots. Sounds like you ought to stay home, right? But they're still willing. They're willing to go. They're willing to risk their life to the death. Why? Because they've been summoned by God to go do this. And they're being obedient and trusting the Lord. And then something remarkable happens. The forces of the Canaanite kings assembles under Sisera at a town called Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. I know you've heard that word before, Megiddo in the plains of Megiddo. It's probably actually where the word Armageddon comes from, um, the hill of Megiddo, which is a popular place to do battle because it's along a significant trade route and it's in between mountains coming down into a valley. So you don't want to fight on the mountaintop. You can't really do that very well. You want to have an engagement there in the valley. So the, the Canaanite kings are coming to do war in this valley by the waters of Megiddo And then an unexpected warrior comes to Israel's aid. Verse 20, From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. What in the world does that mean? That the stars fought? That's just weird. Well, you have to know a little bit of background. Uh, In Canaanite religion, the stars were deified. And the stars themselves were seen because they're gods. They were seen to be the source of rain. So if the gods are real and the Canaanite devotion to these gods is real, then what would the Canaanite gods not do to make sure Cicero won the battle? They wouldn't let it rain. Right? It would be a terrible time for the gods you worship not to pay any attention to you. But what happens? Uh, There's a fierce storm, and it turns the river Kishon into a flood. What's going on here? The Lord, Yahweh, the only true God, is showing he controls the heavens, and he's swept away that military advantage of Sisera. And the scene pictures maybe with echoes of the plague, of the plagues in Egypt. Creation is personified to fight for God's people. I think C.S. Lewis is getting at this. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and he he relates how you know the trees can be on the side of the White Witch, or the trees can pass a message for Aslan. That there's something connected with all creation. Uh, I think probably the the bigger picture is all creation belongs to the Lord, and the Lord can use His creation to come to the aid of His people, and He does that, and this. This is not the first time the Lord has done something like that. In Joshua 10, there's a famous battle where God causes the sun to stand still. in um, Joshua. So, I mean, that's amazing that the Lord would do such a thing. But Yahweh can marshal heaven itself to fight against his people. Or fight against their enemies. He can make, you know, number 16, he can make the earth open up and swallow people if the Lord chooses to do that. So the Lord holds all the cards, we might say, right? He can bring any power to bear that he chooses to do so. And that's what he does here. Sisera's chariots bog down. Their horses are trying to gallop to no avail. So Sisera's men now become sitting ducks. Uh, So the Israelite warriors cry out, verse 21, March on, my soul, with might. And that's exactly what they did. Chapter 4 reported that Uh, Barak's enemy pursued Sisera's men as they tried to flee. So, pretend you're a Canaanite warrior. You're in your chariot. There's suddenly a deluge, a flood coming from heaven. The river starts overflowing. Your chariot won't move. Your horse is trying to pull, but it can't. What do you do now? you got to get out of that chariot and you got to start running for your life because you know you're in serious trouble. Uh, And that's what happens. You might have been so so concerned to get away that you dropped whatever weapons you had because they are hindering you. And maybe Israel is picking up weapons at this point and chasing them down and striking them down. Uh, and every last one is cut down. But then we get a little note in verse 23 that there's a particular town, uh, Moroz, who is cursed because they didn't help. We'll get verse 23. Curse Moroz, says the angel of the Lord, curse his inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. We don't really know much about this town. It's clearly nearby the battle site. But much like the four and a half tribes who didn't come to help, Moroz doesn't come to help. It's an interesting phrase. I found it quite striking that Moroz is cursed because they didn't come to the help of Yahweh. Does Yahweh need help? No. So clearly, there's a little bit more uh, investigation we need to do with this phrase. What What does it mean they didn't come to the help of Yahweh? Who didn't they help? They didn't help Israel. But Yahweh identifies Himself with His people. And when you don't help His people, you're not helping Yahweh. This is the principle of the least of these. Right? Whatever you, don't, whatever you don't do to the least of these, you don't do to me, Jesus says. And whatever you do for these, you do for me. We have to look at God's people as a people attached to the Lord. And then when we serve the interests of the people, we're serving the interests of the Lord our God. Now, clearly he's saying the Lord is the one who brings deliverance. But the people had a role to play. They were active here. But those who looked upon their brothers who were suffering and did nothing, well, they are condemned. I want you to see that we don't have to turn to the New Testament to find an argument for brotherly love. That you need to serve God for the sake of your brethren. We know Israel's been commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. So we might ask here, where's the love? Why don't they love their brothers? What do they love really in this scene? What does Moreau's love and these four and a half tribes love? They love themselves. They love themselves. And what does God think about that? Well, pox be on your house. Curse you. God is saying, curse you if you love yourself and look upon your brethren and do nothing. It should remind you of James too. We taught that not that long ago. Uh, And you remember James is discussing how uh, a brother or sister hears of another brother sister in the body, poorly clothed and lacking daily food, but he says, you know, live long and prosper. Go in peace, my friend. Uh, I hope you're warmed and filled, but I'm not doing a thing for you. And what good is that? Um, James begins to flesh that out and he says that the one who says he has faith but doesn't do things like that, doesn't help his brother, well, what's, what's the reality about his faith? His faith is dead because he has no works that accompany a true saving faith. We should take this to heart. I mean, this is a weird battle scene. Yeah, and there's a lot of things about it we don't understand, but the principle is pretty clear. If you don't come to the aid of your brethren, God will curse you. That should get our attention. Do we have a real concern for the people of the Lord among us? And it's easy to bash these lazy, uncaring tribes But do we care for one another? Are we praying for each other in a spiritual battle? Do we take time to encourage each other in the truth? When we hear of a need, do we do all we can to help? Or do we, I know that we're all tempted to do this, but do we start making excuses? I don't have time to serve. I've got too many irons in the fire. I've got more important things to do. And on and on our excuses go. But That's not a biblical way to love God's people. It's not the way to serve the Lord. So, as we look upon this scene, we've really taken the majority of our time to see these first two elements. Yahweh is to be praised, and then there are pictures of His people, those whom He's blessing and those whom He's cursing. Well, then we get, in the third place, profiles in victory. Profiles in victory. This is giving us a glimpse into two women, and J.L. is one of them, and the other is cicero's mama who's waiting on cicero to come back now as we start this uh, we should note jl cuz she's the, the one who we consider first she's to be most blessed of women why well because unlike cursed moraz who didn't help uh, sorry Morose, who didn't help she did help what did she do Well, Sisera is running for his life. He escapes into this tent looking for a place to hide. We heard in chapter 4 that there were friendly relations between Heber the Kenite and Jabin king of Canaan. So when he came to Kenite's wife, he thought he was safe. He thought he could get help here. He wasn't safe. And we get a frame-by-frame description of what happened to him. I'm going to read it again and I want you to tell me the vicious verbs. Verse 25, "...he asked for water, she gave him milk, she brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, he fell dead." What are the vicious verbs? Crushed, struck, shattered, pierced. Man, this is really violent. Um, This song is not relishing in murder. It is a song of victory in praise of the Lord. It is an appreciation of His triumph over the oppressor. And the triumph is completely unexpected because here's the mighty warrior Sisera and the Lord uses a weak woman to destroy him. As he runs off, we're probably thinking he's going to get away. But no, his manly glory will come to an end when this housewife picks up a mallet to crush his skull to the ground. And he never saw it coming. But I don't want you to feel sorry for Sisera. Our divinely inspired author doesn't want you to feel sorry. You need to understand who this guy is. He's no choir boy. Uh, We have... Not only information that he was clearly an idolatrous Canaanite, but we have information in this text about what kind of guy he was. He was a plundering persecutor who violated the weak. We get this in Sisera's mother in the reflection in verses 28 and following. She's pictured looking out the window, looking through the lattice, waiting on her son to come back, and she wonders, what's taking so long? We know he's dead. He's not coming back, but she doesn't know that. So her wisest princesses and her own heart are speaking of what Sisera and his boys might be doing. What do they always do when they're defeating their enemies? Well, they're dividing the spoil. Spoil that will be, in this case, verse 30, a beautifully embroidered garment for the neck of Sisera's mom, right? Her wardrobe is about to undergo a great transformation as he brings the spoils of victory to her. Dyed garments, she'll look beautiful, colored materials around her neck. But the new threads are not the only spoil of victory. Notice the cryptic statement in verse 30. A womb or two for every man. Think about that a second. It's a crass way to say that Sisera and his boys would seize women for their pleasure and violate them. A womb or two. Multiple women abused. I want you to imagine for a second. ISIS rebels storming through a city, burning the city, stealing treasures, killing men, abducting young girls to sell into the sex trade, and raping women. That's a fair assessment of what Sisera and his boys are doing. And how are these atrocities going to end? One way. They need to die. They need to die. Now, those of us who read this passage and maybe are a little repulsed by the description of J.L. grabbing the hammer and driving it through Sisera's head, maybe we're repulsed because we've never never suffered under such atrocity. It's easy to criticize this description from our comfortable beds and our peaceful lives. But if we lived in Syria or Iran or Nigeria, some other place in northern Africa, we would probably have a different perspective. Brethren, we should long for the day when the Lord Jesus will come from heaven and He will afflict those who afflict His people. And He will set us free from all affliction. How do we know that day is coming? Because on a dark day outside of Jerusalem at the place of the skull, a weak, battered, and bloodied Savior hung on a tree for our salvation. And Jesus didn't look there like the Son of God. He looked like a criminal. He he looked like He had no power at all to rescue us as He was helplessly nailed to a tree. He couldn't even come down. He's being mocked. Come down from there. We'll believe in you. But unexpectedly, as the devil's oppression rages, the God-man rescued us. He paid for our sins. He triumphed over the adversary. He rose from the grave. And how does the Bible describe the defeat of our oppressor? Genesis 3.15, what will the seed of the woman do? He will crush the serpent's head. This is an echo. This doesn't use the same verbs, but it's an echo of that victory. Once we grasp that Jael's defeat of Sisera is a picture of that, we should have clearer thoughts. We should praise God for a smashing victory. That enemies will be defeated. Bless the Lord for that. Because heaven won't be heaven if there are, if there are tyrants there to oppress God's people. Well, one final thing, a closing petition. Real quick. She ends verse 31 saying, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. (laughs) May the end that has befallen this man, Sisera, may that happen to all your enemies. Is that a vindictive prayer? Should, Should we pray like that? Well, Matthew Henry puts it like this. Though our enemies are to be prayed for, God's enemies as such are to be prayed against. If God's enemies continue, then God's people will be destroyed. And God's name will be blasphemed. But we want the honor of God to be exalted. We want Him to be vindicated over all as the King. And when is that going to happen? Well, it will happen when all of God's enemies are struck down. And every time that you dare to pray the the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. That's actually what you're praying for. That the Lord would smash all of His enemies. That they would be no more threat against the name and glory of God or the cause of God among His people. And it's clear when Deborah and Barak are singing this song, they're looking at a foreshadowing of the day when King Jesus will work a great victory. And that day, brethren, will be bloody too. Revelation 19 describes it in really stark terms. Jesus comes on His white horse for victory with a sword coming out of His mouth and He comes to rule over them with a rod of iron to strike down the nations and He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And it describes how His garments will be stained in blood. The enemy will be annihilated. Make sure you want to ask yourself, whose side am I on? Right? Am I on the Lord's side? Uh, Will it be a day of peace for me? Well, it will if you seek the Lord Jesus Christ. So warning, don't reject the King. Don't reject Yahweh. You'll you'll get it. But then there's a praise at the end, or a benediction we might say. um, But let those, verse 31, who love Him, Yahweh, be like the sun as He rises in its might. How will we escape the curse of God? Let those who love Him be like the sun. <clears throat> if we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, rejecting idols but turning to the Lord, we'll be at peace. Deborah prays for those who love Yahweh that they would be like the sun which rises in its might. You now, the sun was worshiped in the ancient world as strong, it can burn you, it's triumphant, it always rises out of the darkness. So, what Deborah is praying is that God's people would be strong and triumphant as they love the Lord that we would persevere in the midst of darkness and know that our God will uphold us. That's a wonderful prayer. Lord, defeat Your enemies. Lord, bless Your people. That's what she's praying. And this is a model to us about how to pray. That's also what we're praying. When we pray, His kingdom will come. Lord, overthrow every threat and bring peace, safety, security to Your people. That's a great thing to pray. May the Lord bring uh, such a spirit of prayer to our souls. And brethren, may this little taste of a, a bloody scene, um, but yet a, a smashing victory, may it stir you as you about to come to worship to bless the Lord who worked a smashing victory for us. And that's why we can even be here to praise our God. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give praise to You for the greatness of Your power that You rule over all creation and that You're able to bring creation to bear to Your cause and to defend Your people. Lord, we pray that we would be on the Lord's side and we would evidence it by standing against Your enemies, but also by supporting Your people. And Lord, we pray for that day when King Jesus will return and He will set us free from all that ails us now and give relief to those suffering affliction. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.